0: Ephesians chapter three, verses 14 through 21, Paul writes, therefore, I ask that you, in verse 13, he says, therefore, I ask that you don't lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. For this reason, in verse 14, I bow my knees to the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in our hearts, your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. not to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, in him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. In this passage, Paul prays. Paul prays that the Spirit of God would strengthen his reader's inner being in verses 14 through 16. He prays that the Son might find his home in their hearts in verse 17. Paul prays that the Ephesian believers would be able to grasp the dimensions of God's love in verses 18 through 21. Years ago, we had a pastor's conference for Calvary pastors all around the country. One of the speakers at that conference was Alan Redpath, who is one of the great, great Bible teachers of all time. And he made a lasting impression on me. During the course of the conference, he was asked this question. He he was asked the question, how... Do you recognize a spiritual man? And his answer was short and simple. He said, bent knees, wet eyes. Alan Redpath didn't simply preach on the subject of prayer. He prayed while he preached. He used to say, let's keep our chins up and knees down. We are on the victory side. In an earlier passage, Paul prayed for the believer's empowerment. Have you ever started to pray? And then all of a sudden you found your mind wandering in different directions. I take comfort that Paul starts to pray in chapter 2 and he gets sidetracked. He wants to talk about God's revelation and the commission that's been given to him by the Holy Spirit. And now he returns back on track. He's back praying with focus. He prays. Paul is a good pastor Paul is not content that the Ephesian believers simply know all that they have in Christ. He desires that the saints not simply know, but they begin to live in all that they have in the Lord Jesus. Paul is is wants them to spend the unrichable, the unsearchable riches of Christ. I want you to grasp that for just a moment. In other words, the currency that's been given to you was meant to be spent. And so Paul prays for God's family in heaven and on earth in verse 15. He prays for strength through God's spirit in the inner person, in the inner man. And I think, I think it's possible to know a lot about cars and never drive very far. I think it's possible to know only a little about cars, like me, and be able to drive far distances. Many Christians know about the great truths in the Bible, but they fail to take advantage of the riches that are in Christ. So Paul is going to combine the knowledge of the truth of God with a powerful prayer to God. He prays for the Ephesians to be strengthened with might in verse 16 so that they can be rooted and grounded in love in verse 17 so that they would know the love of Christ in verse 19 so that they would experience the fullness of God in verse 19. This is impressive. I think it's important to note that We pray about those things, if we're honest, that's important to us. We will begin to pray for our husbands, for our wives, for our children, for our church, for its leaders, for its resources, for our impact. We will pray for what we care about. And I want to bring something to your attention. The Bible gives us permission to pray for physical needs and financial needs. But I think Paul knew that if the inner spiritual condition of the inner person is addressed, the outer conditions, the physical and the material circumstances would be met. In all of Paul's prayers, he never or rarely prays for anything for himself. And when he does pray for something for himself, it's only in order for him to be a more effective pastor, a more effective minister. Paul's prayer is more than just simply a a lesson on prayer. It should prompt us to ask the spiritual question, what's going on inside of me? What's going on inside of my life? How would I characterize my spiritual health? In our look at Paul's prayer for the inner man, we lay our hands on some of the unsearchable riches and the knowledge of Jesus that's past understanding. Look what it says in verse 14, to be strengthened with might. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he says, for this reason, what is Paul making reference to? In part, he's making reference to what was said in verse 13. Therefore, I ask that you don't lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Remember, Paul has been given a commission by God for the Gentiles. He has been called by God to preach the gospel, to bring people into God's forever family, that they would know and understand their need for power by the Holy Spirit to live the life of a believer, to be a follower of Jesus. He understands this for this reason. In our culture, the words enable and empower have become quite popular words. Paul is praying to the Father in the name of the Son. And when he says, for this reason I bow my knees, it becomes the position of humility and dependence. In the Bible, we find Solomon kneeling. As he dedicates the temple in 2 Chronicles 6.13. Daniel kneels continually three times a day. In Daniel chapter 6 verse 10. The psalmist kneels in worship in, in before his God and his maker. In Psalm ninety five six, remember it says that he comes before the lord and he kneels before the god his maker jesus kneels in submission to the father in the garden of gethsemane in luke 22:41 stephen kneels in prayer as he forgives those who are stoning him in acts 7:60 in acts 20:36 paul kneels for the faithful in the church at ephesus and so as he's kneeling it becomes this paradox of both confidence and knowledge of dependence and humility as he makes an appeal to heaven because i'm going to tell you that the normal position of the observant jew isn't kneeling it's standing but paul prays in humility he prays on the basis of his knowledge of god's will and purpose he prays for the knowledge of god's will Before we get into the heart of Paul's prayer, again, we're given a peek into his heart. He's on his knees. And I want you to recall where he is on his knees. He's in a Roman incarceration center. He's under house arrest awaiting trial before Caesar Nero. There's something remarkable about the prayer in and of itself. But I don't want you to disconnect from the circumstances of the prayer. He's about to face charges of treason. And he's going to be before a guy who's arguably either insane or demon-possessed. And what that person decides is going to determine the outcome of his life. He kneels. When a Jewish person gets down on their knees, it's a sign of urgency and humility. We as Christians are allowed to pray standing up, sitting down, laying down, with our eyes closed, with our eyes open. If you're riding a bike, I don't recommend that you close your eyes while you're praying. Or if you're driving a car and you're praying, keep your eyes open, keep your eyes on the road. So it isn't the position that you're in, standing, sitting, kneeling. It's the circumstance of the heart that I want to draw your attention to. So the bended knee represents first and foremost the yielded heart. And then he says, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named in verse 15. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Now think about this. It begins with humility. And then he continues with the expression from whom the whole family. It translates a root word, patria. It comes from another root word, pater, which means in Latin father and in Greek father. We have words like paternity from that. It means lineage or ancestry. Herodotus uses this word in the sense of lineage or ancestry, but in ancient Greek it was used to describe a tribe. Or a people group. So when we use the term my peeps. My people. My background. This is what this means. He's, he's, he's speaking of a group. In verse 16 we get into the substance of Paul's prayer. He pleads with God that the Ephesians would be granted according to the riches of his glory. To be strengthened with might by the power of his spirit in the inner person. When he uses the the expression according to the riches of his glory versus out of the riches of his glory. In verse 16, when he says according to the riches of his glory, do you understand what that means? Let me give you an example. If Jeff Bezos, who owns Amazon, if Bill Gates or Warren Buffett gave you $100, they would be giving out of their riches. But if they gave you a million dollars, they would be giving according to their riches. It's fairly easy for them to give a hundred dollars. For them to give a hundred dollars is like you giving a dollar. But to give a million dollars, that's a significant gift. And so again, it prompts the question: How wealthy is God? We know that the earth belongs to the Lord and the fullness thereof. The universe belongs to the Lord. I remember one pastor would pray, Lord, I know that you have a cattle on a thousand hills. Could you just sell a couple and send it our way? But Paul doesn't do that. Almost every prayer, again, Paul prays in the New Testament, isn't for himself. He is beaten. He is mocked. He's in prison. He devotes the lion's share of his prayers, even then, to others. And like I said, when he does pray for himself, it's always in the context of becoming a better pastor, servant. Paul's praying for answered prayer. Paul is praying that God will answer his prayers according to the riches and glory. These are the resources that are without measure and without comprehension. And so he's saying he's praying with the full expectation that his prayer is going to be answered. And and note the source of the strength. It's the spirit of God. The source of his strength isn't his self. It isn't what he does or fails to do. The Lord is the source of the power of might in the inward person. When we are subject to our limitations, we're subject to fail. When we rely on our own strength, then we're in trouble. The very act of prayer becomes an acknowledgement that I can't but that the Lord can. And so, the Holy Spirit provides the power for our lives. It's the Spirit who begins the lifelong process to make us more like Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 3.17, you'll remember in Romans 8, where Paul says, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestine to be conformed into the image of God. I've used this illustration over and over again. Every morning you wake up, you do your routine in the morning, you look in the mirror, and you might say to yourself, Lord, what do you want from me? But God's Goal is always the same every morning that you wake up. Every morning, every morning that you wake up, he wants to make you like Jesus. Every morning he has one goal and one goal in mind to make you more like Jesus. And he has the resources of the universe to bring about his goal. And so the Holy Spirit aids us in prayer in Romans 8.26 and Ephesians 2.18 and again in Ephesians 6.18. The Holy Spirit inspires us to worship in Ephesians 5.18 and Philippians 3.3. The, the Holy Spirit imparts gifts to us and makes it possible for us to become more and more like Jesus in Galatians 5, and 23. So the Holy Spirit gives us the strength to live the lives that he's called us to live, to be obedient, to remain united with other believers. And so, again, this was one of the things that so disturbed me because I thought that Christianity meant that I had to be a better person. And I knew that I was not a good person. I'm a bad person. I'm good at being bad. And I'm very bad at being good. In order for me to be good, I'm going to need help. I'm going to need a supernatural provision. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. And by the way, when he uses the term strengthen. In the text, in the Greek language, the way that I want you to think about this word for just a moment, to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit, is to understand the word by giving you the definition of the opposite of the word. The opposite of the word in the Greek language here is discouraged. So the word here is the opposite of discouraged. And you and I might use the word strengthened, but we also might use the word encouraged. In other words, what he's talking about is that the Spirit would encourage you in every way possible in your life, in your love, in your walk with Jesus. In 1540, Martin Luther had a good friend named Friedrich Myconius and his friend was very very sick and he was expected to die and from his deathbed Myconius wrote a tender note of farewell to Luther he wanted to say his goodbyes and Luther wrote back I command thee in the name of God to live because I still have need of thee in the work of reforming the church. The Lord will never let me hear that you are dead, but will permit thee to survive me. Listen to his his note. For this I am praying. This is my will, and may my will be done, because I seek only to glorify the name of God, unquote. You might read that and think, man, this sounds like health and wealth. This sounds like prosperity doctrine. This sounds like he's naming it and claiming it. This is pretty bold. This seems very selfish. But you know what happened? God honored this man's prayer. Myconius survived. He got up from his bed of affliction. He lived six more years and died two months after the death of Luther. I'm not suggesting that we name it and claim it or that we we create our own reality, but what I am saying is God honors his prayer because I suspect that he prayed according to God's will. Even though he was praying out of desperation, Paul wants the believers in Ephesus to appreciate their spiritual riches, the source of their power. Paul cares for the church and then he cares for the people in the church. And when the sick suffered, Paul Prayed for their recovery when the Jerusalem church was suffering severe financial setbacks. He took an offering in the Macedonia church in order to provide relief for the hurting church. In the end, it's only the Spirit of God that can give us meaningful spiritual strength. It's the Spirit of God that energizes, empowers, and enables us. But there are so many voices in our culture. There's so many other people who will tell you that the source of power or the source of strength is going to come from drugs or self or personal empowerment or personal enrichment. And Paul calls us to make a surprising disconnect from the culture and to recognize that the true source of spiritual power for the inner person is only going to come by the Spirit of God. And so the inner man is a reference to our true selves This is the deep person. This is the inner person. This is that person that makes you you. But we also might think of this as the spirit that is inside you by the born again person made new by the gospel of grace and the Holy Spirit of God and the presence of Jesus in your heart. This is the inner person. In the book of Corinthians, Paul talks about how the outward person is perishing, but the inward person is being renewed day by day. Paul actually uses that expression in in 2 Corinthians 4.16. He says, don't you lose heart. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. I was visiting a lady in our church on Monday at the hospital. She's, she's only been given a few weeks to live. And when I walked into the room, she was sitting up in her bed. She was listening to her headphones and surprising. She was listening to one of my teaching tapes. And her eyes lit up and so did her smile. And we prayed. And she said, I was praying that you would come. Come. She says, I know this is a difficult subject, but I want to talk to you about my funeral. And I want you to talk about what you're going to say to my children and to my grandchildren. Her heart was full of joy at the prospect of going to heaven her inward person was filled with the love of Jesus and the joy of Jesus even though the outward person was perishing she she was being renewed day by day so what does Paul recommend what does Paul recommend he says in verse 17 that you would be Rooted and grounded in love. He says in verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you may be rooted and grounded in love, that the Lord Jesus would dwell in your hearts through faith. And you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, pause, time out. I thought Jesus came to live in my heart the moment I was saved. And you would be right. Here, Paul isn't Denying the biblical truth that Jesus comes into our heart or that the Holy Spirit changes us. Here, Paul is making a reference to a quality of presence. There's an interesting story in the Old Testament. You'll remember that when the Lord came to visit Abraham, he was accompanied by angels. In Genesis chapter 18, it becomes clear that Abraham and Sarah are entertaining angels unaware. The Lord makes himself comfortable. He's at home with Abraham. He's comfortable in Abraham's tent. A little while later, the Lord sends an angel to retrieve Lot and his family from their home in Sodom. Lot's a believer. Do you think that when the angel went to Sodom and he was sleeping out in the open... That even though Lot invited him over to his home, do you think he felt comfortable in that home? Especially when people were knocking on the doors, and, and, and as horrible as it sounds in the text. The, the residents want to sexually assault this angel. How more perverted could it possibly get? So here's part of the point. The presence of the Lord is at home and comfortable with Abraham in his tent. Paul's prayer is like a telescope that allows you to see further and further when he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts. The word dwell isn't just simply living. It means the place where you take up permanent residence. It actually means to make yourself at home or to to dwell permanently. So Jesus makes his home in the believer's heart through faith. But remember how it begins. In humility and then transparency, being strengthened by the Spirit, Jesus comfortably makes his residence in the believer's heart through faith. And this faith is a reference to the believer's faith. That is that Christ takes up residence in the heart of the believer who accepts him by faith, who receives him by faith, who believes in him by faith. Paul's prayer, like I said, is a telescope. It opens further and further and further. How? Being strong in God's spirit makes it possible for Jesus to live in your heart, and then he makes your heart his home, and then the presence of Jesus in your heart leads you to being rooted and grounded in love. When we yield to the Spirit's power, when we submit to the Lordship of Jesus in our life, the end result, love in your heart for God and for others. We become rooted and grounded in love. We're strengthened God by God's Spirit in order to love. We submit to the Lordship of Jesus in order to love. The Spirit's empowerment and then the Son's enablement equip the believer for this foundation of love. And so Paul takes two metaphors he mixes metaphors and then he joins these two metaphors together. One is from the world of agriculture, the other is from the building industry, from the construction in- industry. Being rooted, doesn't that make you think about a tree? And grounded. This is a word that describes a foundation that's being laid. These are the telltale signs of a mature church and a mature believer. They are they have deep roots. They have a firm foundation since the beginning of our church. Since the beginning of our church, when we had our first Bible study, it's always been my goal that the roots of our church be as deep, as as wide as as the branches are wide. Because deep roots will mean a deep church, a spiritually mature church. We yield to the power of the Spirit. We submit to the Lordship of Jesus. The end result is love. We become rooted and grounded. And he uses these two terms. Are your roots as deep as your branches are wide? Is your Christian life marked by a firm foundation? Because the firm foundation, of course, is Christ himself. It's the love of Jesus himself. It's the presence of Jesus himself. Love is the soil that allows the roots to grow deep. The love of Jesus serves as the strong foundation on which to build our individual lives and then build the life of the church. Here the text literally reads, this is what it literally reads, having been rooted and having been founded. The emphasis in the Greek text is the present result of a past action. Jesus has done this in the past. This is the present result in the here and now. And so the clause connects verse 18 that this rooting and founding makes possible understanding the magnitude of God's love. And then in verse 18, he says, "May that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes understanding. Paul prays, That this foundation of love will give the saints the ability to grasp or comprehend or lay hold of and not let go of the vastness of Christ's love. Here, comprehend, again, means to lay hold of. It means to grasp the understanding of God's love in Christ. And then he's going to go on and say, as if that could happen. It really can't really happen you'll never really know it but you should be able to experience it you should be able to experience it because you've experienced his love you've experienced his grace you've experienced his mercy there's a song that we sing, how deep the father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. We, we sing the songs, we search for, for things that will reflect our experience. We reach out, look what he says, that you will be able to comprehend with all the saints. Do you know why I think he says all the saints? Because no single individual will be able to understand it. But you'll understand a little and 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 you'll understand understand some and you'll understand some. And then collectively we'll begin to know more and more and more and more. Because as the saints combined together begin to relate the combined experience of what it means to know him and to love him. But I'm going to suggest to you that even if we took the rest of the service and I gave each and every one of you and I said, tell me in just a few sentences about what the love of Jesus means to you. And you spoke and you spoke and you spoke. And we would know a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. The Life Application Bible Commentary adds, quote, no single believer can assimilate the mystery. Chapter 3, verse 9. The wisdom, chapter 3, verse 10. The riches, chapter 3, verses 6 and 8. By himself or herself, it takes all believers, unquote. I love that. The commentary continues, quote, Christ's love is total, complete, eternal, all-encompassing. It reaches every Corner of our experience, this passage shows that even as we seek to grasp and understand and understanding of Christ's love. We will never understand it completely for it's beyond our comprehension. It is wide, covering the breadth of our experiencing, reaching to the whole world. It is long, continuing the length of our lives and then on into eternity. It is high, rising up to the heights of our celebration and elation. His love is deep, reaching into the depths of discouragement, despair, and even death. Think about that for just a moment. I'm going to pause Pause from the commentary and just plumb that for just a moment, reaching into the depths of our discouragement, our despair, our depression. When you go into this dark rabbit hole of dark difficulty, God's love follows you there in the pain, in the sorrow. In the loss. How far does it go? As far as he has to go. How far does it go? It goes even to death and then beyond death because the Bible says precious in the the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. The commentary says, quote, various attempts have been made to identify the four dimensions. Wide. Long, high, deep, with the four arms of the cross, with the four dimensions of the heavenly city in Revelation 21 16, or the four dimensions of the universe. We happen to know that the universe, if we are to believe modern science, is 14 and a half billion light years across. So imagine if you could travel a a light year and then another year, and then go a hundred thousand miles, and then a hundred million miles, and then a billion miles, and then a billion more and a billion more. And let's say you could go 14 and a half billion light years across the stretch of the universe. You could go as high as it is, as low as it is, as wide as it is. And God's love goes further. He says, most likely they should all be taken together. As a reference to the all encompassing mystery of the love of God. So imagine you came up with an amount. Remember when you say to your children, How much do you love me? I love you more. So come up with a point, and God's love is further. How big is the love of Jesus? How vast beyond measure. How do you measure that which cannot be measured? Do you measure it by the outstretched arms of Jesus on Calvary's cross? Do you measure it in terms of his righteousness and our sinfulness? Do you measure it by his suffering and our reward? Is Christ's love big enough to accommodate the worst sinner in their worst sin, then that means it's big enough to accommodate you. In your worst sin, Paul prays, Paul prays, he prays that we would know something that we can't know. And you might be thinking, well, that's pretty hypocritical of him. I mean, look at the Bible. It's full of contradictions. Why in the world would Paul pray a prayer that cannot ever be answered? It's because it's a literary device. Christ's love is unfathomable. But yet we can experience it for ourselves. You can experience it. And you can experience it to a small degree or a greater degree, or to the greatest degree, we can grow in this experience. We can grow and grow in the experience. John Owen, the Puritan writer said, we are never nearer Christ than when we find ourselves lost in the holy amazement of his unspeakable love. And that's exactly right. And then he talks about the fullness of God. I remember when I first read this, when I first became a Christian, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I read that and it was shocking. I thought, what in the world does this mean? What could it possibly mean? What in the world does this mean? And once again, we connect the dots of Paul's prayer. Connect them with me. Being strong in God's spirit makes it possible for Jesus to make his home in your heart. The presence of Jesus in your heart leads to being rooted and grounded in love. Being rooted and grounded in love, we experience God's love. As we experience God's love, we're filled with the fullness of God, this fullness of God, the only way I can possibly define it is again by its opposite. Fullness means lacking nothing. There's nothing left. There's nothing lacking in our relationship with the Father. There's nothing lacking in our relationship with the Father through the Son by His Spirit because the fullness of God is found only in Jesus. It's only found in Jesus. It's found nowhere else. Colossians 2, 9, Paul talks about it again. He says in Colossians 2, 9 and 10, for in him, that's Jesus, for in Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily And you are complete in him who is the head over every principality and power. You don't have to look any further. There's nowhere else to go. You don't have to go anywhere else. You have nowhere else you could possibly go. We appropriate this power. We appropriate the presence of Jesus by faith and personal prayer. We experience it moment by moment. And our ultimate goal is to be like Jesus and Jesus is then seen in us. Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is Paul's prayer for you and for me. We can ask the Holy Spirit to fill our lives in every way. We have the fullness of Jesus. Now here's the paradox. We have the fullness of Jesus. And there's still room to grow. We have the fullness of Jesus. It literally means to be dominated by that filling. There's nothing left of self. The old man is gone. This is the fullness of grace. This is the fullness of love. This is the fullness of his presence. And whatever else it means, whatever else it means, it must mean that the presence and the perfection of Jesus in us means that there's nothing left to need. I suspect that Paul has our final state of perfection in mind. But this doesn't remove the reality that God is at work. God is at work. God is molding. God is shaping. God is forming us. He's, he's making us into the image of God. We're back to Romans 8, 20 8 for whom, For whom he did for no, he also did predestine to be conformed in the image of his son. God is at work. Working, working, working. I want you just for a moment not just to consider the content of this prayer, but the audacity of this prayer, the outrageousness of it. Paul isn't asking for something as crass as money or power or influence or possession, or even ministry uh, power. Paul's praying for strength in the Holy Spirit. Paul's asking for the ruling presence of the king of the universe in his heart. Paul is asking for the fullness of Jehovah Elohim and to experience the love of Jesus. And once he's done praying for that, he concludes the matter. Look what he says. Now to him, that's the Father and the Son, and the Spirit. I, I'm, I I don't know who he's making reference. It might be one, or both, or all. He says, but now to him who is able to, to do exceeding, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I remember Paul Smith, Chuck's brother, teaching on this passage. He he preaches this passage, he says this verse, he lifts his head, and he asks the question, does God answer prayer? And then he just simply said, does he ever? God's ability to answer prayer. His ability to answer prayer is found in these seven things. Number one, he is able to do what we ask. He's not inactive. He's not idle. He's not dead. Someone told me today a definition of sin. They said sin is the hope that God is dead. But God isn't dead. He isn't idle. He isn't inactive. He has every ability to answer your prayer. Number two, he is able to do what we ask. For he hears our prayers, but it's more than that. He longs to answer them. Number three, he's able to do what we ask or think because he can read our thought. He can read our mind. He can even sometimes understand that we imagine things. We imagine things that we dare not say out loud. We don't even dare say it out loud, so we don't dare even ask. And so he knows about what you are fearful of asking, afraid to ask, because it is so outrageous. It is so beyond belief that you can't even bring yourself to do it, but he knows what it is. Because we imagine things that we don't dare ask for, and therefore we don't ask for. Number four, he's able to do all that we ask, all that we think, because he knows all, and he can perform all. And number five, he is able to, once he's done that, he can do more. Now unto him is to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. He can do more. The Greek word more, you know this word, hyper. You use it in everyday language, hyper. It means beyond. Hyper, beyond all that we ask or think. Because his expectations are hyper, beyond all that we ask or think. His expectations are higher than our expectations. His thought is greater than our thought. Number six, he's able to do more (laughs) <laughs> and then Paul says, much more, more abundantly. The, the Greek word is parasas. He can do more abundantly, paras, than all that we ask or think. For he does not give his grace by calculated measure. So you pray and you go, I need grace. I'll give you more than you need. I need to know your love. I'll, I'll, I'll grant that to you. I need forgiveness. Not only will I forgive you your sin, but I will declare you righteous by get, by imputing my righteousness to you. What? No, I'll do more. Number 7. He's able to do how much more? Very much more. Paul uses the superlative of the superlatives. He invents a Greek word that I don't think exists in any other ancient writings that we can find far more abundantly than all that we ask or think because God is the overflowing abundance. He uses the term hyper, beyond, parisos, abundance. So there's beyond, and then there's abundance, and then he creates a whole new word by linking these two words together, a super superlative, immeasurably more, vastly more, infinitely more. I'm trying to think of ways to say this. Major, but beyond major. Beyond the imagination. Beyond the belief. This is the infinite ability of God to work. Beyond anything that you could say, anything that you could imagine, anything you could think, anything that you could hope for, anything that is beyond, beyond your wildest dreams. The application Bible commentary again says, quote, our thoughts include more than we dare ask in our prayers Our dreams exceed what we consciously desire. God answers prayer. He even answers unspoken prayers. God can act beyond our ability to ask or even imagine. Paul uses three superlatives to drive the point home. God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above anything that we would dare ask, think, imagine. God is not just above, far above beyond our finite minds. God is able because of his awesome power to the unfathomable depths of Christ's love is added the exceeding abundance of his power. Believers can claim Christ's great love. Read it in verse 19. To know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, and know that his power works In us through his Holy Spirit, unquote. Paul writes these words. He prays this prayer under arrest in Rome, facing trial before arguably the most powerful human being on the earth, Caesar Nero. He writes and he prays from his experience in that cell. He writes. And he prays chained to the soldier. Paul's words, he writes them. He prays them. He's, he writes them down. And these words in the, the book of Ephesians is put together. It's sent by a courier to the people in Ephesus. And Nero is dead. And every Christian in every generation have Read these words, studied these words, prayed these words. Augustine read this passage. Aquinas read this passage. Luther read this passage. Calvin read this passage. You've read this passage, you've read it and studied it. What a prayer! To him be the glory. The word glory, remember I've told you, this one word is the one word that if you were to take every attribute of God, imagine glory is a pot. And imagine you're putting in God's omniscience, his omnipresence, his majesty. Think of any attribute that you can think of, his self-sufficiency, his self-existence, everything that you can imagine about God, everything that he is, everything that he is, you put it in this pot and that's the word that comes up, glory. It's the one word that describes the sum And the substance of God's holy attributes. It's a reference to his wonderful, awe-inspiring presence. Glory is what you were designed to give him. You exist to glorify him. Our church exists to glorify him. So the ability to glorify God comes only Only, only through Jesus Christ the Lord. His sacrifice on Calvary's cross. His resurrection from the dead. All that Jesus has done has made it possible for us as individuals and us as a church to glorify him. And so the prayer closes... With this doxology. Some Bible teachers, scholars have suggested that this doxology was a song that they sang, that it was originally intended to be inserted at the end of the letter. But here, it's inserted right here. I am going to suggest to you that they're wrong. Paul sings these words of praise out of the prayer. He sings it because of the prayer. In the first part of Ephesians, Paul describes the timeless role of the church. And in the closing chapters, in chapters four through six, Paul is going to explain how the members of the church can live together in unity and submission to his perfect will based on everything that he has sang and sung and preached in the first three chapters. Jay will... J. Wilbur Chapman tells this story at one of his services. I never forget it. He, he, He said, quote, I got off at the Pennsylvania Depot as a tramp, and for a year I begged on the streets for a living. One day I touched a man on the shoulder and I said, Hey, mister, can you give me a dime? As soon as I saw his face, I was shocked because it was the face of my own father. I said, Father, Father, do you know me? And throwing his arms around me, tears in his eyes, he said, My son, my son, at last I've found you. I've found you. You want a dime. But everything I have is yours. Think of it. I was a tramp. I stood begging my own father for 10 cents when for 18 years he was looking for me so that he could give me everything that he had. J. Wilbur Chapman says, when the Holy Spirit empowers you and Jesus, no, this isn't J. Wilbur Chapman, this is me. When the Holy Spirit empowers you and Jesus Christ is at home in you and His love has mastered you and God has filled you with all of His fullness so that He can do exceeding, abundant above all that you could ask or think what is it that you want? What is it that you want God to give you? Because I guarantee you whatever it is He wants to give you more. You want something and He wants to give you Everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we don't even pretend, even for a moment, to understand all that this passage says and all that this passage means. Lord, I know that it has to mean even more than I've been able to say. Even more than I've been able to share. But Lord, I just pray even just for a moment for that person who has been struggling. To comprehend even for a moment the height, the width the depth, the dimensions of your love, which which begins to disappear in every direction. Lord, we know that you're committed to us. You've given us everything that pertains to life and godliness in Jesus. Lord, you've demonstrated your love. You've proven your faithfulness. You've revealed your power. Lord, I pray that you would cause faith to well up inside of us as we begin to ask for the impossible. And we begin to dream dreams that seem absurd. But Lord, I pray for these men and women. I pray that their lives, their ministry... And the love of Jesus inside of their hearts would be so evident and attractive that it would compel others to quite literally say to them, I want to know this Jesus that you know. I want to serve this Jesus that you serve. I want to experience the love that you've experienced. And so, Lord, again, I pray for that person who in the depths of despair, in the darkness of the dungeon, of the depression that they might find themselves, that your love would find them there and that your love would speak to them there and that you would redeem them and take them out of the pit and place them on a rock. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. <laughs>